0: Hello, I'm Tom Ballard and welcome to What's the Story, the podcast where we chat about Audible's latest editor's extra. It's like a book club for your ears. For this month's extra, we have been immersed in The Widow, the captivating, disturbing, and New York Times best selling novel by Fiona Button. Jean Taylor's life was blissfully ordinary nice house, nice husband. Glenn was all she ever wanted, he was her prince charming. The
1: next morning, Glenn came into our bedroom with tea in my favourite cup. You are the centre of my world, Jeanie, he said, and held me close.
0: Until he became that man accused, the monster on the front page. And suddenly, Jean was married to a man everyone thought capable of unimaginable evil.
1: Mrs Taylor, the deep voice would say, I'm so sorry, but I've got bad news. The anticipation of the next bit Almost used to make me giggle. Mrs. Taylor, I'm afraid your husband has been killed in an accident. Me, the grieving widow. Don't make me laugh.
0: Now, Glenn is dead, and Jean is alone for the first time, free to tell her story on her terms. Jean Taylor is going to tell us what she knows. Yes, there was a huge cast of characters, lots of perspectives, a half-dozen red herrings, all building up to a twist, all of it exploring the mind and character of Jean Taylor, or, has her husband, Glenn called her, Jeannie. Lots to talk about with this month's guests. Bit of a warning, there are spoilers ahead... Very excited about this month's guest who will be joining me to talk about The Widow. First up is our returning guest, the comedian and the host of Australian True Crime Podcast, Michelle Laurie. Welcome back, Michelle.
2: Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be back talking fake crime, the uh, fictional crime <laughs> as a true crime listener.
0: Yeah, something a bit different. I remember last time we talked, you were doing a lot of listening in the train. How were you listening to The Widow?
2: In uh, The Widow, I did a lot of washing dishes too. actually. Um, I don't know why. My kids are just pigs, I guess. Uh, but... I- <laughs> <laughs> and I don't like using a dishwasher, but I get very angry when I'm cleaning, so I like a distraction, and this was a perfect distraction for me.
0: Well, it is—it is domestic suspense, I believe, is the genre that's in. So it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, also, is, during, that, is
2: that a genre?
0: Apparently, yeah, that's the one that Fiona Barton's um, pioneering. Oh. So there you oh. go. And also joining us is a lecturer and doctor of forensic psychology at the University of Sydney, Dr. Celine Van Gold. Hello, Celine. Hey. Thanks for being here. Listening to The Widow might have seemed like work to you. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of what you do as a doctor of forensic
3: psychology? Yes, of course. Um, so I conduct research and I look at memory and eyewitnesses, suspects, and victims of crime, and how questions that we ask within a criminal investigation can change those memories. Right.
0: And you're not just in academia, you, you are involved in active cases on a regular basis. Yes. Yeah? How are you listening to The Widow?
3: It was a long listen, <laughs> so I did it while driving.
0: This is the first ever audiobook you've ever listened to us. Is that right, Celine? That
3: is right. Wow. Yeah, it was it was a long experience. It
0: was long. It was <laughs> quite a production, right? It, and, and Claire Corbett, the narrator, had a huge task on her hands. It's ten and a half hours. We're getting multiple points of view. She has to bring alive a huge cast of characters, Jean Taylor, the widow, the reporter Kate Waters, the detective Bob Sparks, the mother of the missing child Dawn Elliott and the husband himself, Glenn Taylor, Michelle. How do you think Claire, Claire Corbett went?
2: I thought it was amazing. I mean, on top of that cast of characters, there's assorted sort of neighbours and, you know, witnesses and things. And there were moments where I think the accents may have crossed over a bit where it was a little, but I, in, they were my favourite moments. I thought she did a really good job.
0: <laughs> she really fleshed those memories. out. As, as hell, but I thought just... it was good. Yeah. <laughs> Celine, what did you make of Claire's yeah. performance?
2: Um, I have to admit that originally,
3: it being my first audio book, so I didn't really have any expectations and I was a bit distracted by the lady trying to impersonate a man's voice. But by the end of it, you really get into it and you're just like, oh, yeah, there's Glenn again. And it's like <laughs> the late <laughs> speech, like very slowly and slurred a bit. So, yeah, I was quite, I liked it. I really got into it by the end.
2: Janie, Janie, Janie! They, they're just trying to go after me, Jeanie. <laughs> oh, no, Glenn say, <laughs> though, I do prefer it when books have, when audiobooks have lots of actors. I do prefer, it's like more radio play-ish when they have a man playing men and a lady playing ladies and they have a few different actors. I do prefer that. Even though this woman's effort was amazing and I, you know, commend her.
0: Michelle, how did you like the way Fiona Barton slowly revealed Jean to us over the course of the story?
2: I really liked that. I loved that there was a moment where I went, oh, Jean's unhinged. <laughs> and uh, I loved that moment because I didn't see it coming. I thought, yeah, she's, she's in an abusive, emotionally abusive relationship. I understood that. But then this moment when we find out she's been cutting out photos of children and keeping them in scrapbooks, I was like, oh, dear. That was the moment where I thought Jeannie did it. Um, Was I the only person who thought that? No.
3: I was actually also convinced at a certain point, like, she is at least involved and maybe she actually took herself and kept her hidden in that water boiler as well.
0: Yes. We know there's an unhealthy relationship to children. Let's have a listen to that moment where we discover Jean's scrapbooks.
1: There were three little scrapbooks, each one filled with pictures I had cut out of the magazines at work, newspapers and birthday cards. I wrote... My babies on the cover of each book. Because they were. So many babies. I had my favourites, of course. There was Becky, with her striped baby grow and matching headband. And Theo, a chubby toddler with a smile that made me shiver.
0: Oh, no, Jean! (laughs) No! (laughs) No.
2: Okay, so this is when you start
0: to suspect her as actually potentially could be responsible for Bella's disappearance.
2: Yeah, well, my first thought was, get a cat. (laughs) And my second thought was, I think maybe she did it and maybe Glenn doesn't even know. And, uh, I, yeah, I thought it could have gone in those directions and they would have been good. But now that I think about it, it was good that it didn't because then it was more suspenseful. I really didn't know who had done it until the end, even though we kind of knew all along who'd done it. It's a weird one that way. It's a weird mix,
0: right? And this this is sort of the the thrill of the book, right? We're constantly second-guessing ourselves, even though we've got this insight into Jean's mind, we're also questioning what she's telling us. She's an unreliable narrator. We see her believe Glenn and disbelieve Glenn and follow his, her lies and try and figure out exactly how we're being positioned as a reader in relation to the crime. And we're right there with Jean as she's interrogated and rattled by the investigation and we're trying to hold on to her faith that her husband is innocent.
1: They wouldn't answer my questions, just kept asking theirs. Questions about the day Bella disappeared. Why was I at home at four instead of at work? What time did Glenn come in the door? How did I know it was four o'clock? What else happened that day? Checking everything and going over the same things again and again. They wanted me to make a mistake. But I didn't. I stuck to the story. I didn't want to make any trouble for Glenn. And I knew he'd never do anything like that. My Glenn.
0: Mm, Do you think she really believed that, Selena, or is she just sort of kidding herself?
3: I think at this point she still believes that he wouldn't have done it. And I'd try to blaze myself in that situation. If my partner said, like, oh, remember three months ago? Um, they're going to ask some questions. Can you just let them know I was home at four o'clock? And I would be like, oh, yeah, why not? And then, <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking like, yeah, I would probably like say that he was home at four because I don't remember what I did three months ago on a on a Tuesday afternoon at four. Um, once all the other evidence comes out, I would probably like reassess my question though. But <laughs> right. I, I think at that point she still believed him um, and believed that he wouldn't do that sort of stuff because that must be like devastating as well. Just imagining that your partner would be able to do that.
0: And this is the grip, right? This is at the core of the novel. This is what Fiona Barton wanted to explore, the idea of being the partner of someone, the wife that she'd seen in the dock at court cases during her work as a journalist, these women, overwhelmingly women, who had to go through the mental trauma of coming to the realisation that their husband, their partner was someone that they didn't know at all and was potentially capable of doing this this horrible, horrible crime. Were you on Team Jean the whole way, Michelle? Were you barracking for her? Hoping that she'd get through and do the right thing?
2: Mm, yeah, I was. Although now I'm on Team Celine because I, I find it heartwarming that you've worked in crime so many years, and yet still, if your husband said, Just tell him I was here, just tell him I was here, babe, at four, <laughs> that, you, that you wouldn't have any red flags about that. And I love that, that you've retained that. That's good. But. I, uh, I wish I was married <laughs> He's a police to officer. <laughs> ah, well, in that case, yes, we all know. Yes, yep, yep, you were where you say you were. I mean, she. there's a point where we realise, oh,
0: you are kidding yourself because you know your mm. husband is going on some pretty dodgy websites. He's partaking in a whole bunch of nonsense that involves mm. sexual activities and children, and yet apparently your husband could never possibly do anything like, you know, take hostage a young girl.
3: I think at that point she didn't know yet that it involved kids. She just thought it was porn in general or, like, nonsense in general. And then when the evidence starts stacking up, then it becomes very clear. But people go in denial anyway. Uh, I think it's really you get cognitive dissonance. You don't want to focus on... Well, it is confirmation bias. You don't want to focus on the specific evidence that shows you that something completely different than your beliefs or your initial idea of your husband. And then cognitive dissonance is later on when you take the information or the evidence that's present and then you try to frame it in such a way that just... Uh, falls in line with your beliefs about your husband again. So, ah, oh, yeah, he went onto websites, but sure, no, they were just adults dressed like kids. Right. They weren't really kids. It's not that bad. He wouldn't take a two-year-old. You can make those excuses. I mean, yeah. y-
0: y- you deal in this kind of area in your work and your research, Celine. You deal with witnesses and um, victims and you're exploring the reliability of people's memories and other people who are testifying on behalf of um, alleged perpetrators. Did Gene Taylor ring true? Did this story, um, you know accord with the kind of work that you do and the research you do
3: it did it's i thought that was one of the strengths of this book where it really felt like well this is what happens during a criminal investigation and this is what happens to the partner of a suspect and also to the suspects themselves and the witnesses there where you had the old guy that was the neighborhood watch that wrote some things down but then confused something and didn't really want to acknowledge that he confused Mm -hmm. the pages out of his book and um, people's memories change over time. And when you try to re-remember something previously, you can actually have gaps in your memory and you fill them in with new information. Mm. So it, I thought she did a really good job with giving an accurate description of what happens in all the different parties involved within a criminal investigation.
0: Well, Fiona Button's experience sort of shines through. She's uh, the author. She spent years as a journalist covering crimes and big stories like this, like the one we explore in The Widow. And, you know, she embeds that experience into the character of the post reporter, Kate Waters. Kate shows a little bit of kindness towards Jean, but, you know, she's pretty determined to get the exclusive.
1: Jean, you signed a contract with us. You agreed to cooperate fully and you're putting the whole deal at risk by your behaviour. What were you thinking of, sneaking off like that? I can't believe she's talking to me like this. How dare she tell me off like some kid in my own home?
0: Michelle, you were on board Kate. You're like go get that exclusive mm. girl. Um mm-hmm. you liked Kate Waters and the role of the media in this particular case? I found it a bit gross, to be honest.
2: Oh, I found it hideous but real. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I definitely thought it was a realistic portrayal of the way that people in the media really feel about these stories. They can get on TV and cry while they're presenting it. But the, I, I found it very realistic about the way they really think about them, the way they manipulate them and manipulate victims um, because I think of Jeannie as a victim, actually, in a way, because she's clearly been. Um, would you say, Celine, that she had been groomed? Would you use that word in, in her life?
3: I thought that the whole time. Like she was really young when they got together. He also looked at all these photos of like a little bit ambiguous, so Mm. adults dressed like teens, Mm. and he got her when she was a teen and I'm thinking like, oh, she just grew too old and then he had to replace her because he was no longer attracted to her and she's groomed into that relationship. Oh, gosh. yeah,
2: Right? So, yeah, I found the, the, the way that they manipulated her, she was a weakened person and... Kate and other people took advantage of that weakness and tried to build her up and give her a cuddle when she had a cry and stuff. But really, all they were focused on was their own ends, which is very realistic in my experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's this this objectionable factor of the media to me where – we saw the good that the media can do, right, when they launch a campaign and they mm. want to try and find this missing girl and they want to zero in on it and try and, you know, help police in their investigations and try and do the best for Bella Elliot. That's very nice. But when the news value fades away, when no more details come out, mm. I guess when the public get a little bit bored or there's nothing else to say and they can't make, you know, shitloads of money by mm. <laughs> exploiting this horrible tragedy for their own sort of ends, then it all kind of goes away. And it's also imperative to them that they do have this exclusive access to Jean and that she only tells her story to them. Um, And same with Dawn Elliott as well. You sort of see this profiteering over this kind of horrible case.
2: On our podcast, we end up with interviewing a lot of families at the back end of that, families who say, we still haven't finished our story. We still don't know where our loved one is. We still don't know what happened or whatever, but no one cares anymore. No one will talk to us anymore. We're desperately trying to drum up publicity still to bring awareness around it, uh, but no one cares anymore. And they're, they're the people we end up with on our show, you know, because they just want someone to keep listening. Mm. I think that it was also reflected
3: in Don when at a certain point she goes and confronts um Glenn and Jeannie outside of their lawyer's uh, place Mm. and she tries everything and it was very clear that Cato bosses were no longer interested in interacting with Don so she goes to every single media outlet trying to keep it going Mm. and I can completely understand that like what Michelle said as well it's that for the victims and the family of the victims it never stops it doesn't end when the headline is gone this is their new life now and especially if there's no solution there's no body found you always keep that drive to trying to figure out what happens.
0: And what about publishing the photos of their holiday? Now, I know that Glenn was the mm. killer and he is bad and yes, their big on holiday was bad, but like, that doesn't do anyone there's no news value to that at all. That's just like, like some awful tabloid moment that's going to make Dawn Elliott feel horrible mm. and, you know, Hector's Jean Taylor, who we've established is also a victim. I, I hated that bit.
3: As a person who loves tabloids <laughs> <laughs> Yes? I would, I would have totally read that article Yeah, same. But but it is... But that really, Check
0: out Glenn Taylor's beach body. <laughs> yeah.
1: um, but I'm
3: just like, um, I, I'm, from her perspective, when you read it from her perspective, it's devastating. And I feel as well like he's very inconsiderate towards her and how she's feeling, but that is like the story of their life. That is why she ended up with a scrapbooks.
0: Yeah. Mm. Look, generally speaking, I, I was hooked into this story. I wanted to find out what was <laughs> happening by the end, but it, it, it was a bit of a slog for me. Like, I really did think this went a little bit too long. I think you could cut about a third of this story out. There were just a few too many details for me. So... Towards the end, I was listening on one and a half speed, to be honest, so that was just my personal take. But when we got to that final ending, like, it, it was extraordinary. It was really disturbing, particularly that chapter from Glenn's point of view describing the way he went about committing the crime itself. It was pretty chilling.
1: Glenn pulled away, turning left into a side street almost immediately and drove around the block. Had the old boy seen him? Seen his face? And if he had, so what? He'd done nothing wrong, just parked up. But he knew he had to go back. The little girl was waiting for him.
0: See, that to me is just the idea in his brain that Bella is waiting for him to come and and take her is is extremely dark and, you know, a a horrible insight into the kind of um, minds of of people who who commit these kind of crimes. What do we think about that, that ending of the book when it was revealed that it was in fact Glenn Taylor all along? What did you make of that, Celine?
3: I was happy because I I, I didn't want it to be Jeannie and I didn't want it to be the other guy that he worked with with, that was like pretending to have very bad back pain. Right. Because at a certain point I felt like, oh, maybe he's just pretending and it is him who actually did it and he's like trying to get um, Glenn to become a suspect. So I was happy that it was Glenn, but I found it devastating for
2: Jeannie in the end and especially then her response to it as well. Yeah. I found some some redemption for Jeannie, actually, in that she had pushed Glenn to tell the truth. You know, as she's explaining to us him, the way Glenn told her what happened, and he says, and then, I don't know, she was just dead. Uh, Or she was sleeping. That's right. Glenn said she was sleeping. And Jeannie said to him, she wasn't sleeping, Glenn. And you know it. She was dead. And so I felt some real redemption and strength in that moment from Jeannie, where for once in her life, she really took it to Glenn and... And called him out on it, and forced. I felt like she forced him to tell her the truth. Actually, yeah.
0: Well, she really took it to him when she pushed him in front of a bus. <laughs> oh, I love that <laughs> and bit. Killed him.
2: <laughs> I mean, I knew that. A nudge. I knew that from the beginning. I thought, mm hmm, just fell in front of a bus. Yeah, mm, righto. Convenience. Yeah.
0: This and this to me is perhaps speaks back to to my frustration with the pace of the novel. Like, I think it took us so long to get to a point where we arrived at the conclusion of stuff that we kind of already knew. And maybe that replicates the experience of women in, this, in these situations, women who want to tell themselves a bunch of different stories about what really happened when, in fact, the cold inevitability of the fact that their husband or their partner is responsible for this terrible crime. I guess we go through that. But for me, it just took way too long for us to get there.
2: Yeah, as a as a murder nerd though, I I really liked it. Uh, I liked that she went into so much detail about the investigation. That was my problem with uh, what's my problem with a lot of these sorts of books is that the way they describe investigations is really sort of unrealistic and silly. But I thought this one. She really went. I even loved the fact that she went into the sort of discipline reaction against the, um, you know, against the lead detective when he when he didn't get it right and he didn't get a conviction. I thought, yeah, man, that's really realistic. Do you think that was realistic, Celine? I think so, and I quite
3: appreciated as well that they actually showed the timeline because we've everything depicted in books or media, it's always like oh, a crime has been committed and within one week they found a perpetrator. <laughs> yeah. So the majority of the time... Within it, 50 it, minutes, yeah. yeah. We're, we're already <laughs> at the court case, yep. yeah. And, um, and the majority of the time it does actually take that long and there were very realistic aspects to it and how they interview people and where they focus on and what kind of leads that they follow. Um, what I did find a little bit disappointing though is that, um, as you said, it was... Initially to start, it goes on and on and on, and then the wrap up is like, okay, last two chapters done.
0: Oh right, <laughs> yeah. it wrapped up too quickly for you, right?
3: Okay, and I was just like, oh, we could have like done a little bit more emphasis here, and then mm. less on. What her mom likes for dinner. Yes, yeah. I mean, there was a bit
0: when Bob Sparks is on holiday they talk about what sandwiches he was eating with his wife and I was like, I don't care. I'm sure, sorry, Bob, I, think I don't he went care what the sandwiches he yeah. <laughs> so. All right, we're going to chat more with Celine and Michelle in a second. Right now, let's hear from the author herself. Here is Fiona Barton joining me from the UK to chat to me about the ethics, the characters and the research involved in making The Widow. Fiona Barton, welcome to What's The Story?
4: Thank you very much for inviting me.
0: You're very welcome. Congrats on The Widow. I know it's a few years ago for you now and a couple of books ago even. But first of all, I need to ask, have you listened to the audiobook? I know you've, t- you've chatted to Claire Corbett, uh, the woman who brings the story alive in this recording. Have you actually listened and uh, followed along like uh, our listeners have?
4: Yes, I listened to it uh, um, when it was first made. Uh, very surprising. Um, because in my head, I'd had Jean's voice for so long, it was very odd to hear it uh, like everybody else. But it was, yes, I think Claire Corbett did a fantastic job on it. She brought her to life. I was very lucky to get her to do the book.
0: You mentioned some of the ethical dilemmas that Kate Waters comes up against. And it feels like in The Widow, there is something of a critique of a media culture and the approach that some sort of tabloid outlets take towards the kind of horrific crimes and the circumstances and the scandals that we're talking about when we're talking about the the crime at the heart of the widow, camping out on people's doorsteps, um, taking photos of people on holidays. The British tabloid media, I, I must say, are, are pretty extraordinary, the kind of lengths they'll go to. And obviously we think of things like, you know, phone hacking scandals, those kind of things. Is that something that you, you wanted to say and, and, and a
4: critique that you were hoping to make through this story? People say to me, uh, people who I'm, you know... I- who I've invited in for dinner, friends, will say, oh, but um, reporters make it all up (laughs) as if it's a fact. And it it just, it burns, obviously, but it's just not true. Um, Yes, there are bad apples. You know, yes, there are um, people who hacked into phones and did terrible things, and I don't defend them for one moment, but for every one of those, there are a hundred who are reporting news with integrity and are, you know, are doing the job um, that, we, that we aspire to.
0: I think you do that really well. There's that glimpse of when the papers take on the campaign. I think this is where the media can be really powerful, when, when news outlets and media outlets make a campaign to try and find a missing person or use their power and their reach to try and solve something or make the world a better place. So I, I, that's certainly in the, in the story too
4: yeah there is cynicism there is some cynicism um, in newspapers because we do it day in day out for the person who it's happening to it's probably the first and only time something terrible will happen to them mm. so I don't know if you've ever sat in on a murder trial um, but nothing is held back uh, what you what you read in the papers um, is is a sort of a, a you know a a finessed version, because some of the details are just, you know, too awful uh, to put out there. But in the court, it's it's all you imagine. Well, I used to imagine that it was the first time that um, the loved ones were hearing this um, about uh, the person that they'd chosen to spend their lives with, and what that must feel like. Um, how do you square it with yourself?
0: And and that's. That's what really pulls you through the novel, right? This really fascinating exploration of a person in an extraordinary situation who is a flawed human being. We sort of go, we sort of waver back and forth about whether or not we like Jean Taylor and we feel sorry for her, obviously, because of the situation, the way Glenn has treated her over the course of their relationship, but then she makes some pretty dodgy decisions. Did you ever end up in a place where you sort of passed judgment on Jean Taylor and made a judgment about how she deals with all this,
4: no, because I think that would have ended the novel um <laughs> i think i I went along with her, I was seeing things um I was in her head, if you like I mean I know it sounds a bit weird and spooky, but it was Jean's voice that I heard um in the beginning when the idea for the for the thriller came up um was that. I could hear her speaking um and so I set it so that she was the first person narrator so we were in her head looking out of her eyes and seeing things um that she saw but we were also listening to her voice and she wasn't always reliable um in what she said to people I didn't I didn't want to judge her because um I was her Um, when I was writing her
0: Fiona Farton thank you so much for chatting to us on What's the Story congratulations on all the success of the books and uh, we'll chat to you again thanks very much
4: thank you so much
0: Okay, let's chat a bit more about the actual crime nuts and bolts of the widow. We've discussed this a little bit. Let's go deeper. Michelle, we get a pretty detailed glimpse of a criminal investigation over the course of the audiobook. How realistic did you find it?
2: Well, having never been a criminal investigator, but uh, spoken to a lot of them, (laughs) I thought it was pretty realistic. Celine would know better than me, but it reminded me a lot of the uh, investigation into the William Tyrrell case, even uh, to the point where the, the lead detective was was disciplined when the case fell apart, reminded me so much of Gary Jubelin, who's just been removed from the Tyrrell case after being the lead investigator for so long. So it, it and, and the sort of the red tape that you come up against when you know what you know, but you can't prove it, the frustration, the way it would take over your family life. It seemed realistic to me. But as I say, Celine, you would have a much better gauge on that.
3: I Completely agree. I thought it was really realistic. Um, the interactions, the different point of views, um, the different avenues that they take into investigating, and also like the standstills that you come to, like following leads that don't work out at all and then starting from scratch again. I thought like, Exactly the same about the William Tyrrell case. But besides from the police investigation, like everything, the mom goes into the house for a few minutes, Mm. leaves the child in the garden, and then it disappears. And while there's people around in the quiet street, no one actually notices it or picks up on it. And it's like, how can that happen? How can a child just vanish vanish without anyone noticing anything? And it was afterwards with the media coverage and a photo of Bella everywhere and we still see William's photo everywhere and every um, like year that he's gone again he will be back in the news and that was so similar that was like
0: yeah. Remarkable really and this is the kind of work you do you you talk about um, people's uh, memories of events and the reliability of that and I remember I remember the first episode of Serial that massive true crime podcast that everybody was obsessed with a few years ago Mm. then pointing out that of course, on the day that the crime happens, it's just another day. So if you're a witness or if you have some information relating to that crime, you sort of, you know, not, you're not logging every single detail. You're probably listening to a podcast. Mm. Like, what's the story? Yeah. And you're not noticing all these details. So when later when someone asks you, oh, where were you going and what direction was that car going in? Like, how are you supposed to remember that stuff?
3: It's like people are unable to remember that. And unless you take contemporaneous notes like the neighbor did, the Neighborhood Watch had written some stuff down, you will not remember because this is a mundane day for you. And especially if there's not heaps of shouting or gory things going on, but somebody picking up a child, there's nothing that grabs your attention. So you're not even distracted from your everyday task and something captures your attention. But it can get even worse because from research we know that once you focus on one task, even if a crime is happening close by, you might not completely notice it.
2: And, of course, another problem is that we're all so confident in our memory, isn't it? We will swear that we remember something. Clearly I can picture it. I promise you this has happened. I've been through so many meetings in which I've sworn I didn't say something on radio or television and then they'll play it back for me and I go, (laughs) oh... So that's, that's got to be a problem too,
3: right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And we do rely on our memory, and especially within a case like this, if it's broadcasted everywhere and it's like national news, you're constantly remembered and reminded of specific things mm. of that case. And while you have gaps in your memory for that day, you might fill them in with the information that you get from the news So you heard about like uh, all the newspapers go to Don's house and and record around there and you see the garden where Bella disappeared from. And it's very imaginable that then later on when you think about like, oh, I've seen that garden. I know what it looks like. I can describe what happened on that day. Well, it's actually the news report that you remember rather than your actual experience on
2: that day. Yeah, I know it came up in William Tyrrell's inquest that um, his foster mum remembered two cars in the street but she remembered it days later so again that can be difficult can't it for investigators when you think shouldn't you remember every detail of the day a child disappeared but then realistically it feels like probably not actually because you'd be so focused on searching for the child does it make sense to you that memories important memories like that could come back though for real um yes well there's a
3: like a memory effect called reminiscence and this is that over time we might Remember details that we previously forgot. And these are often not the most important details. For example, with this, the car might have not have a direct association for you when you had the panic of your child disappearing. Um, But there are new details that will come up and then... um, Next times that you provide statements, you all of a sudden have all these new details and people see that as an inconsistency in your memory with your original account and say, well, it must be incorrect, but it's not necessarily the case. Mm.
0: And then there's the matter of memories from the point of view of perpetrators. I want to ask you about that brief moment when Glenn kind of comes clean to Jean about what he's done and there seems to be a bit of a hole in his memory.
1: I wanted to bring her home for you. She was standing there and I smiled at her and she put her arms up to me. She wanted me to pick her up. I got out of the van, but I don't remember anything else. Next thing, I was driving the van home to you.
0: Now, we know that that's not what happened. We have the outsider's perspective of exactly what went down on that day from Glenn Taylor. But are those kind of suppressed memories a thing, or is that just something that guilty people say to make themselves feel better and to try to get away with it?
3: Um, it's more likely a thing that guilty people say to try to get away with it. There is a big debate about suppressed memories, but it's mostly about people all of a sudden remembering childhood events that never happened, and then after a very long time, it, because it was so traumatic at the time, they repressed it. There's a big debate, and not a lot of psychologists believe it's actually a thing. Um, when we look at perpetrators, unless they're heavily intoxicated, while well, that might have had an impact on their memory encoding. You, they don't just forget things like that.
0: So you think Glenn knew exactly what he was doing he and exactly. had it all up here, just had to try to make himself feel better. Yeah,
3: and make Jeannie believe him, so he Ooh, was playing her. Yes, Glenn
0: Taylor, you bastard! Um, <laughs> what did you make of Bob Sparks's investigation? The way he interrogates witnesses and uh, questions people, and sort of builds that investigation.
3: So a lot of my research looks into how to properly interview people without getting either a false confession or developing a false memory in a witness or a suspect. And I don't think that Bob Sparks did the appropriate thing or the the best thing he could have done and it especially bugged me that he said like oh I had this forensic psychological book like next to my bed that I read about Mm -hmm. how to interview people and I'm like yeah those are exactly the wrong instructions oh really so he was going in there trying to intimidate Glenn and uh, trying to get that confession well we know from research if you want to prevent false confessions from happening you actually should go into an interview with a information gathering Um, mindset and not with trying to elicit that confession by intimidating them and standing over them and making yourself bigger and using your body language to intimidate your suspect.
0: I've always wondered that like on TV shows, like it's good TV if you yep. throw the chair around the interview room and you <laughs> wave your finger in their face and say, you did it! But but it probably isn't very effective from a criminal investigation point of view, right?
3: No, but the problem is that that type of interviewing techniques are still used in certain countries and a lot of police officers around the world used to be trained in these types of interviewing techniques because they uh, were taught, like, you can make an assessment if a person is lying or not by just looking at their body language, which is completely unscientific. We are actually really bad in assessing if someone is lying. We're about a chance level, so we could as well be flipping a coin. (laughs) And uh, then we said, like, so you know that they're lying and they don't want to confess, so go in there and get in confession, try everything. And if you look at the United States, for example, a lot of those cases of wrongful convictions over there, are caused by these very improper interviewing techniques, and those interviewing techniques are still in use. Are not banned. Well, in a lot of other Western countries, including Australia, these types of interviewing techniques are now banned.
0: Obviously, the big turning point in the investigation, or at least later in the court case, is when it's ruled that this evidence they've gathered through posing as a as Goldilocks in a chat room to try and tempt Glenn is ruled inadmissible. What did you make of that particular technique? Is that something that you know police investigators might actually do? How ethical? is that? How did that strike you?
3: Not being a legal professional, I don't know how legal it is within Australia, but I do know that they are used with um, certain units that look into child exploitation. And there are people because you hear it on the news, it's reported in the new often in the news that they have the meetups with the pedophile somewhere in a Mecca's car park and then instead of the fourteen year old girl showing up that they're expecting there's a bulky police officer of forty two and to arrest them. Um, so I know it is being used and I don't believe it is considered entrapment in Australia, but I like don't quote me on that in a legal context. <laughs>
0: this is just okay. me reading these books. Any detectives listening to What's yeah. the Story? Don't necessarily <laughs> swear by that.
3: So I do believe there is an important role for this type of research, or for like investigation techniques, but it needs to be like properly guided.
2: Given that probably the majority of readers of this book will be women, I would say, and a lot of them will be like me, mothers of young children online and all that stuff, I thought it was a very... Uh, proactive thing to do also to talk about things like privacy settings and to talk about the fact that it's not a private conversation that you're having and that anybody can be listening and people can piece together bits of information that you drop online. I thought that was really, really good, really positive thing to include in the book. Mm, that was
0: a nice detail. Yeah, I mean, you're very interested in uh, Justice Celine and um, Glenn Taylor escaped justice in the courts, but Receive justice in another way at the heads of Jane Taylor. Yep. You're involved in the Not Guilty Project and you're concerned about wrongful convictions. Can you tell us about the Not Guilty Project?
3: Yes. So we have an innocence type project. So people who believe they're wrongfully convicted can send all their files from the police investigation and the trial to the university. And we've got students from law and psychology working together on the supervision of academics, going over the cases, assessing if a potential wrongful conviction has taken place. And in the end, we draft a report that we then hand over to legal practitioners and they can see if they can take it over and potentially reopen the case.
0: Mm. Is there a, a common reason uh, that leads to wrongful convictions? In in The Widow, we sort of see this pressure, I guess, on the investigative team to you know to get a result. Um, at one point, Bob Sparks wonders, oh, maybe we were too focused on Glenn Taylor and we shut ourselves off to other possible avenues. What are the main reasons that keep coming up as to why people are wrongfully convicted?
3: So within Australia, we don't have a full picture of the actual causes of the wrongful convictions over here. We often turn to the United States, who have a big database of all the exonerated people and what the main causes were. We see over there, it has been eyewitness identification and eyewitness memory as a leading cause of wrongful convictions. Mm. Also, false confessions and improper forensics. So, Mm. they've misinterpreted or misrepresented forensic science. Now, of course, their police system and legal system is completely different than within Australia. And if you look in Australia, that's often very similar and compared to the UK. And within the UK, there is a big problem with forensic sciences. And even from the cases that we have received, and of course that is just a snapshot because there's various innocence type projects within the different states in Australia. We see that forensic sciences are often brought up, or forensic evidence is often brought up as one of the reasons for the wrongful conviction. And at this point we don't know yet if it's a wrongful conviction, we're just investigating it. This is just people claiming they've been wrongfully convicted. And we also see police investigation often as a cause and that they're set up by police. and. While I can appreciate that in specific countries that might be an issue, I also often believe that police don't have enough time to frame you (laughs) for a specific
0: crime. Too busy, too flat chat yeah.
3: to be know, stitching so anybody busy. up. Yeah, to putting like DNA in your cars and stuff like that. I'm like, the police officer has time for that. But <laughs> um but but we do see like often within these within these cases, it's a snowball effect. Okay,
0: final thoughts. Will you be recommending the widow to your friends, Michelle?
2: Yes, I'll be recommending it to my true crime listeners because I think they will dig it as much as I did because the minutia of the investigation is what we live for. So Everything you put on one and a half times, speed, that's what we live for. We'll listen to it twice. You'll listen at half speed.
0: Yes. You'll slow it down, yeah. Celine, how about you? Would you recommend The Widow?
3: Um, I would recommend it. I'm actually going to buy it for my mother-in-law, mm. Kate, Lo- uh, Kate Waters. Oh, that's
0: right. Your mother-in-law's <laughs> name is Kate Waters. She'll oh, love
3: it. I know. Great. Uh But um, I, would, I already spoke to some of my colleagues who are very dedicated to audiobooks and I already recommended that they should listen to this one if they have ten and a half hours.
0: (laughs) Fair one. Ready for it. (laughs) There you go. Well, we'd love to know what you think of The Widow 2. Please tell us. Just head to the What's The Story Facebook group. You can leave reviews, your thoughts, you can ask questions, you can offer opinions and you can read about the other audiobooks that other people in that group are listening to and recommending. Celine and Michelle Laurie thank you so much for joining me for this month's instalment of What's The Story.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me
0: no worries. And thanks to you for listening. Remember, if you're an Audible member, you'll get one credit each month to use on any audiobook of your choice. You'll also get our selected editor's extra, the bonus bestseller that we chat about here on What's the Story. If you're starting your own audiobook club, send your friends to audible.com.au slash story to get involved. Thanks very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Hey, if you liked listening to The Widow, you might like these other titles available on Audible. When a paragraph in an evening newspaper reveals a decades old tragedy, most readers barely give it a glance. But for three strangers, it's impossible to ignore. Journalist Kate Waters is back in Fiona Barton's multicast narrated audiobook, The Child. Christian White's The Wife and the Widow is a mystery thriller told from two perspectives. Kate, a widow whose grief is compounded by her dead husband's secret life, and Abby, a local whose world is turned upside down when she confronts the evidence that her husband is a murderer. The Child and The Wife and the Widow are available now on Audible.